So last week we began uh, our journey through uh, the Bible, looking at his story, God's story, who he is, how he has revealed himself, how he has uh, communicated to us his nature, his, his essence. And the heart of this is to, to understand the Word of God better, to understand the flow of the Word of God and exactly what's going on in it, but also to, to understand uh, the God that we serve and who we are. Um, in this story, how do we fit into uh, these, this expression of, of who he is and, and what he came to do? And, and last week as we began, we, we asked the question, what was God doing before creation? And, and uh, the conclusions that we draw or, or I drew were essentially that he was enjoying existence. He was there. He was whole. He was complete. Uh, the Trinitarian God, three persons, one God uh, dwelling there in perfect harmony. And uh, we took away from that existence, from that nature, from his personality, that he is relational. That is, he is in his essence, in his nature, built for relationship, built for uh, connection. That, that's an outgrowth of who he is. We talked about how uh, he is love, and we talked about how he is the giver. And, and with those three truths uh, in mind, we step into Genesis 1 this morning, and we're going to be looking at actually Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, in terms of the story that, that unfolds here, as, as God steps into history now, steps into um, our world, steps into our existence, steps into our concepts of time to make all it is, to make time, to make us, to make uh, the rest of the world and creation as we see it. And, and in this stepping out, in this, in this action that he undertakes, we see him uh, setting the stage for who he is and who we're going to be. We see him establishing, if you will, the ground rules, establishing the nature of how he's going to interact with that which he has made. And, and what we see, what we come to understand is that he is the king. He is the ruler. Now, we have a long history here in America of of dealing with with uh, kings uh, from a variety of different standpoints uh, in that regard, um, and you know one of our basic questions, being Americans and being built uh, with a government with a system that's of the people, by the people, for the people, is uh, what gives anyone the right to be king? What gives anybody the claim, uh, the the right to claim themselves as king, to claim themselves as sovereign? That is the one who's in control, the one who directs all things. Well, what gives God the right to be king is he made it all. Okay, He established himself as king by making all that there is, by, by, by determining the nature of all that is. It is his creativity. It is his imagination. It is his, his outlook, his perspective that has formed and shaped all that there is. And so if there's anyone who is sovereign, if there's anyone who's in control, if there's anyone who possesses authority, it's him. And we see that played out uh, in uh, the context of our passage this morning. And, and the first truth we see as we step here into Genesis 1, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is that God established his position through his actions. In other words, he, he establishes himself as king, as sovereign, as the one who's in control, by actually doing something. He doesn't just stand up and say, I'm king. I deserve to be king. Give me your uh, your obedience. Give me your 
your recognition, giving you your, your praise and your adoration and all these other things. He establishes that by actually doing something, by actually demonstrating his authority. And, and he does that here in, in, in two ways, I believe, in Genesis chapter 1. Two actions. The, the first of these is that he created. He created. Now, I know that some of you in the back, you, you mentioned this before, you can't see some of that smaller print. I'm sorry I didn't know of any other way to do this because I want all of this on one screen, okay? But this is, uh, the word created in Hebrew is bara, B-A-R-A, bara, okay? Now, what's special about that particular word is that only God can do it, okay? Whenever that word is used throughout the whole Old Testament, it's a work that only God can do. Now, man has gotten pretty good over the years at, at making things, creating things, re, 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 reanimating things, and, and cloning things. You know, uh, I remember several years ago, it's kind of fallen off to, to some degree, but I remember so several years ago, the, the wonder, you know, where you had that, that sheep, Dolly, I think it was, was her name that they had cloned, that this, this sheep was, was just created from the cells of this other sheep and so forth. And, and man has gotten pretty uh, amazing uh, in terms of what we can do. And, and to be honest, we probably should be able to, to do that sort of thing. If we are, as we're going to talk about here in a minute, you know, created in God's image, then we ought to be able to mimic some of the things he does. It's just logical to assume that. But like the, the old story of the scientist who uh, challenged God to, to a contest, talking about how great and how powerful they were and how they could do just about anything God says, okay, very well, let's do it. Let's have a man-making contest. And the, the scientists said, okay, we can handle that. God said to them, we're going to do this just like I did back in the old days with Adam. The scientist said, sure, no problem. He bent down, grabbed himself a handful of dirt. God looked at him and said, no, no, no. You get your own dirt. I made this. Okay. In other words, we're... We can't, we can mimic a lot of what God does, but we can't create. We can't make something from nothing, which is exactly what God did. Now, in Genesis 1, you have six uses of the word create. This, this particular word, this distinctive word that only God can do, it, it uses other words for, for making, for shaping, for forming, those sorts of things. But there's six times that the word create. Uh, is used here, and uh, these these carry with them some importance just in terms of what they're communicating. The first one is right there in verse one: God created the heavens and the earth. And that phrase "heavens and earth" is a phrase that means basically everything. Okay, it's what's called in 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 interpretive processes in scholarly circles a mirism, m e r i s m, mirism. Probably not a word that you use every day. Um, but there it is. It's a word that, that talks about, that uses the extremes of some reality to say that everything in between those two extremes is included. And so when you talk about the heavens and the earth, you're talking about the extremes of reality and everything that's in between those two extremes is included. So when it says there in one one, God created the heavens and the earth, what's it saying is God created everything. There's nothing made that he didn't make. And that's where it starts. But then it goes on, and, and the next time you see create is in, is in the first part of verse 21, 
For since he created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and forms in the water. Now, now why, why there? Why, why jump all the way to uh, what is tantamount to uh, the fifth day of creation? Okay, so you've had four days of creation without the word create. Not that he didn't do it, but it doesn't use that specific word. Why jump here? Because the writer wants to emphasize certain things about who God is, especially to his audience. Okay, he wants to he wants to he wants to highlight things. He wants to you know take that highlighting marker that we that we use today, and he wants to he wants to draw that in so that you see that, and you're like, okay, this is a big deal. And, and in their culture, one of the things you see in a lot of the writings from the, from the other ancient Near Eastern texts is how their gods struggled with the great sea monsters. It, in every story, Mesopotamia, Egypt. Uh, the Hittites, all, all the surrounding nations, all, all the surrounding cultures had these stories of how their God fought battles with the great sea monsters, the great sea creatures. So you don't see that in Israel's story. Wherever the sea creatures are mentioned in Israel's story, they're just a plaything to them. They're just a toy. And here it highlights what? He made those sea creatures. He created them out of nothing. And, and so it's emphasizing what? Think of the thing that, that troubles everybody else. Think of the thing that, stro- that everybody else struggles with and every, everybody else uh, has to deal with or, or fight against, and it's nothing to God. He made it, in fact. Okay, How powerful is he that the biggest, baddest thing you can think of, he made it. Okay, That mountain you're struggling with, God made it. He's not going to struggle with it. He can get you over that. He can get you through that. Okay. Then you have the creation of the, the winged creatures, which again is in, in a lot of the ancient Near Eastern culture, that's something that's outside the purview of the gods. But here, as Moses is writing this text, he's telling us God made those things too, those, those things that are so wondrous, so, so mysterious to us. How does something fly? I mean, that's always been a question for us, right? I mean, that, that kind of gave birth to the whole uh, search for flight there in the early 20th century. How does something fly? How, how, how does that little bitty thing flap its wings and take off? Or you look at an eagle fly, and they're up there. They're not even flapping their wings. They're just kind of floating, just soaring up there for hours sometimes. That's wondrous. That's amazing. And the writer here, Genesis, says, you know what? God made that. That's how creative he is. The thing we can't even imagine how it happens, he made it happen. And we can see something that he made happen occur right in front of us all the time and be in awe of the fact that he did that. And we can't. But then the last three uses of created are all in one verse. All there in reference to man's creation. When God makes mankind, male and female. And three times in that verse it says, God created us. He's doing what? He's establishing his position. You know, if, if you you know, if you say, I, I, I made that once, or I created you once, okay, that might sink in. But you say it three times. Hopefully that would sink in. 
where our origin comes from, where our source is, what where where we are are, are made to, to to operate, where we're made to function. And so in this active, this action of creation, we see God's power. We see his creativity. We see his imagination. We see his authority over us. He is sovereign over us because he made us. He created us. You know that old line that that dads like to pull out every once in a while, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. That certainly applies in manifold, tenfold, thousandfold to God. He is sovereign. He literally brought us into this world. He is in control. But the second thing that he does that establishes his position is kind of surprising. It, it kind of shocks us. And that is he granted us freedom. Okay. Genesis 2, 15, 17, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and watch over it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. One of the things I, I've noticed, especially over the last uh, couple decades, is how um, insecure a lot of political leaders so forth are around the world. And that insecurity plays out most evidently when they get what? Very despotic. Very, you can do this, you can't do this. Okay, whether we're talking about communist China or, or, or you know, uh, Russia or North Korea, or whatever, the people who are the harshest, the people who are the, the most controlling of their population are the people who are the most insecure about their position, most paranoid about it. And so for God, in his sovereignty, in his power, in his majesty, to step in and say, okay, I just made you. I just created you. I'm God and you're not, but you know what? I'm going to let you choose. That is an ultimate expression of his security and who he is. That's an ultimate expression of his authority. I am so powerful. I am so much in control of this and so much in charge of everything that's happening that I can even let you have free will underneath that and operate, to have real choice, to have real uh, capabilities here. He wasn't threatened by our freedom. There was nothing about our freedom that, that caused him to say, I'm really not sure about that. And that's still the case. He's not threatened by our freedom. He's not an insecure God who has to who has to continually, you know, squash us or stop us to keep us in control. The times that he does judge, over and over again, we see, and we'll see this in a moment, the times that he does step in to judge, it's not for his protection, but for ours. 
That's the kind of authority that he yields. Now, in response to that authority, as, as you hear the story of God's authority and how he's created all things and, and, and his actions demonstrate his power and his majesty and he's given us this freedom, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we respond to that gift? And how do we respond to that authority? Because notice here in this account, it says what? It says, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden. Okay. The, the Hebrew there is, is, is actually much more dramatic than, than our English is able to communicate. The Hebrew there is, is saying, God is saying, I want you to eat abundantly, freely, go over the top and eating from anything in the garden. The verbs that he uses there, the, the expression that he uses there is saying, man, I want, to put it in a modern vernacular, I want you to pig out on all of these trees. But there's one you can't have. And the question we have to ask ourselves as we respond to God's sovereignty and God's position and God's authority is which tree do we see? The one that he puts in front of us that says, you can have as much of that as you want. I'm giving you these blessings. I'm giving you these, these gifts. I'm giving you this, this beauty of this world. I'm giving you life. I'm giving you hope. I'm giving you joy. I'm giving you peace. I'm giving you all of these opportunities to, to live the fullest and most complete life. I'm giving that all to you. But there are, there's also some things over here I don't want you participating in because they will cause you harm. And really the struggle for our living with God and relating to God comes down to which of those two trees we see. Because if our heart and our mind is stuck on that, well, I can't believe I can't have that. And I can't believe that I'm not allowed to go over there and, and take that without consequence. If that's where our heart and mind and, and, our, and our thought process goes, then we're on the road to misery already. We're on the road to hurt and pain already. We're, we're on the road to, to hopelessness already. Because we're unable to see the manifold blessings that he has over here. Where he's just pouring it on in his goodness and his mercy and his in how he has he has enriched us and how he has he has gifted us so many amazing things. But so often we can't see that. Because we're looking over here. God has done the actions that are necessary to communicate his position and his goodness. How are we going to respond to that? Having established himself in his actions, he also <coughs> excuse me, expresses his position with his commands. And, and he, he he practices what we call permissive sovereignty. Okay. Permissive sovereignty is expressed in, in many of the verses with the let there. You ever notice that, that as you're reading there in Genesis 1 and, and the creation is taking place, God doesn't say light exists. He doesn't say, you know, expanse between the waters, it's now time to come into being. I command it to be so. He says what? Let there. Okay. 
It's what's called volition. It's called what's called a volitional command. It's a command where the person hearing the command has the privilege, has the opportunity to participate in it, to respond to it, to come alongside the one making the command, to be a part of what's happening there. And there's really not, there's really not an equivalent in English for this. Let there expresses it, but it it really doesn't carry the weight of it. Probably the closest thing I can think of that that would be a volitional command in English is is when the young lady looks at the young man and says, you can kiss me if you want. Okay. She's what? She's she's kind of telling him, you better kiss me. Okay. But she's also what? Giving him permission to participate in that command. That's, that's the closest thing I can think of in English that, that portrays what's going on here. It is a command. It is an expression of authority. But it's also a granting of permission to come alongside in that. At the same moment, that, that's such a, a powerful expression of, again, God's authority and sovereignty and how it's so unique. He's not imposing himself on creation. He's inviting creation to participate with him, all the while still expressing that he's the one in control. He's the sovereign in that particular situation in life itself. And so you see that several times throughout chapter 1, this, this invitation invitational command that expresses his authority but also his invitation for us to to respond to him he also expresses his his position through commands in what's called assigned stewardship god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful multiply fill the earth subdue it rule the fish of the sea the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth He's telling us to multiply and fill the earth here. He's, he's communicating what? This is all mine. I'm going to let you take care of it. Okay. Now, is that command there in, in verse 28, permission to do whatever we want to with the earth? Is, is that what that's communicating? I don't think so. I think what that's communicating is, this is all mine. I want you to take care of it for me. Closest example, again, I think of in terms of our culture, in terms of the way we do it, is is the, the parent who's going on a trip and has an older teenager. And as they're walking out the door, they say, the house is yours. Okay. What do they mean by that? They're not, they don't mean throw a party and trash my house and destroy everything that, that's here. They mean what? You're in charge to take care of this house in my absence. You better do a good job. Okay. That's what God's saying here. He's, he's giving us the stewardship. Now, this, this assigning of stewardship, this assigning of responsibility, can only be done by the person who's actually in charge. Toward the end of Jesus' ministry here on earth, he says what? All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. That's assigned stewardship. I have all the power. I'm assigning you this task. And so God here in his command is saying, I have all the power. I'm assigning you this task. Take care of my planet. Take care of my creation, what I've made. 
So as God is, is communicating here to his creation, to, to us, he's expressing his position, his authority, his sovereignty over all these things as he also places some responsibilities on us. Now, why do we get this special privilege? Why do, if you go back to his actions, why were we given freedom? If, if you go to his commands, why does he give us permission to participate and, and the stewardship and so forth? Because we were created in his image. He explains his position in us, in humanity. And, and this is one of the, the, the things that in some ways puzzles me, but in other ways challenges me. God, as he's creating, and he's making these, these things, these realities, and he's clearly in control, he's clearly the authority, he's clearly in position. He suddenly says, you know what, let's, let's make something completely unique. Let's make man in our image. He created us in his image. And, and going back to that verse that I had up there before, verse 27 of chapter 1, three times he says he created us in that verse. And not only is he expressing his authority, but he's expressing our distinctiveness. We're different than all the rest of creation. And the reason we're different than all the rest of creation is because we were made in his image. Now, there's lots of different explanations for what the image of God means and, and what that exactly is in us. There's, scholars have been debating that since probably Moses wrote it and handed it to you know, the first set of priests, and they're like, oh, let's debate what this means. Okay, it's, it's, it's been part of our debate. But whatever you conclude about that, whatever view of image you think that that is involved with that creation, it at least means this. In some way, when we look at us, we see him. In some way, some component of who we are, some component of how we act, some component of who we're supposed to be, when we look at each other, we're supposed to be reminded of him. We're supposed to see him. That is a, that is a huge responsibility. It's a huge challenge to us to walk in a way that reflects him appropriately. And it plays out in, in, in a variety of ways in terms of us understanding him. When it came time for salvation to be made possible, he didn't come as some other type of animal, some other type of creature, some foreign entity even. He came as one of us. 
that's part of the story of his planning before creation, his working out here in creation. He's already looking toward that. He's already making preparations toward that event. He's making us in his image as a claim of his position over us, of our connection with him, but also his plan to save us. And since we're made in his image, we were made to be relational. Just as he is relational and always has been relational, we are relational. The first not good in Scripture, there in chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. Now again, think about that sentence. It's not good. And that's expressed before the fall. Before sin has entered in, before any sort of corruption or or problems or any issues at all have, have occurred. We're still at this moment in perfect relationship with God, walking relationally with Him. Adam had the perfect relationship with God at this point. And yet God still utters that sentence, it's not good that man should be alone. Why? Because we were made relationally in his image. And just as the three persons within the Trinity are all co-equal, co-eternal, there's a connection there because they're all the same substance. They're all the same God. We needed something. We continue to need something that mimics us, that is like us. That when God made us, that a part of how he made us was to say, I'm going to make them in such a way that there's a part of them even I don't feel. They need community. They need connection. They need relationships. And so he did. And so every time we think about our need for others, every time we think about how we were constructed for relationships and, and the struggle that we have. You know, I, I, I'm, an, I'm an introvert. Oftentimes I would prefer a book to a person. Just being honest. Not because I don't like people, but because people drain me. And books don't drain me. They energize me. Okay. But you know what? I still need people. I still need those connections. And every time I realize and think about, man, I, I need that connection. I need that relationship. I need that corporate worship. I need those, those experiences with somebody else. That ought to remind me of the God that I serve and his position and his authority and his nature as being relational. It's meant to point us continually back to him. The third way he functioned with humanity to explain his position was he instituted the family to reveal the intricacies of it all. 
chapter 2, 21 through 25, it talks about how God put Adam into a deep sleep. He's going to make his, his help meet. The one who's like him, the one who's connected to him. He takes the rib from the man and he creates the woman. And brings her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I don't think we can read that sentence with enough enthusiasm to capture what Adam was feeling at that moment. He was pumped. He was excited. He was filled with joy. At last, here she is. And notice he doesn't name her. This is so important. He doesn't name her. He describes her. She's the feminine form of me, is what he says. I'm Ish, she's Isha. I'm just going to put a feminine ending on, on what we call her to what we call me, and that's what we got. He doesn't name her. Why? Because... When God created a family, he created this unit that was, is meant to demonstrate, to, to display, to proclaim who he is. And in that proclamation, just as you don't have ranks within the Trinity, you didn't have ranks within the family. They were side by side. There was this connection. There was this working together. There, was the, there were roles, certainly. There were, there were aspects. This is the, the Trinitarian the Father has certain roles. The Son has certain roles. The Spirit has certain roles. Those roles were there, but there was equality. There was connection. There was a playing out of those roles without confrontation, without struggle, without hurt. We, as families, are meant to demonstrate who God is and how He relates to humanity. That's why we were made. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 and following, talks about mutual submission that we can experience in Christ and, and how we can, having been transformed and changed by Christ, we can get back to this connection, to this expression, the way we were supposed to be, to walk together the way we were intended to walk. And Paul says, this is a very great mystery. that the family unit communicates the divine. That's why how we view the family and, and how we define family and, and how we define these things is so important because it's meant to reflect who God is and the intricacies of how it all works and how he brings things together. Now, if you're at all familiar with the story, you know at, at this point that, that something happens. Chapters 1 and 2, we've seen God's authority. We've seen his sovereignty play out over and over again in his actions, in his words, in the way he created us, in the way he shaped us. We see his authority on display. We see that he's the king. We see all that we're supposed to see in, in him and, and the relationship and how it's supposed to work. But then man makes a decision to walk away from that. To say, I can do better. 
just the foolishness of that sentence alone astonishes me. And yet, I express it nearly every day. Every time I sin, I'm expressing that very thought, that very idea. I can do better than what God has commanded in this situation. And when man steps forward and they eat of that fruit and they rebel against God and they say, I can do better, we enter into a time, we enter into a situation that we find ourselves in now called the fall. And with that fall, a separation occurs, an alienation occurs. But I want us to understand this one very important truth. God did not lose his position through our sin. God is still on the throne. God is still king. God is still in authority. And that plays out very clearly for us in chapter 3 of Genesis as this all plays out. The very first question God asks is, where are you? Chapter 3, verse 9. Now, it's not that God didn't know. This is God, again, expressing himself relationally and authoritatively. He has the authority to ask where we are and to try and pull us back. He has the, he has the position. He has the, the, the role to, to do just that. We also see that he held us accountable. In verses 14 through 19 of chapter 3, you have the curses. He's doing what? He's still in control. He's expressing, I'm still the one in authority here. This disobedience that we've committed has consequences. And I want you to note, and I wish I could dig a little bit deeper into this, but I want you to note the, 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 the symmetry of the punishments of sin. What were the two roles of the woman before the fall? She was to, to be she was created from his side. She was to be the help me. She was supposed to be in relationship with him, walking with him, encouraging him. And she was what? She was filled the role of procreation, fill the earth and multiply. And what are her two punishments? In childbearing, she'll have pain, procreation. And she'll be at enmity with her husband. Her two roles have been twisted but in a way that God is going to use that to, to try and, again, bring her and all mankind back. The man, his two roles were supervision and work of creation. And yet, what's his punishment? The ground is now in rebellion. The thing he was supposed to, to supervise is now in rebellion against him. And what? He was supposed to work creation. Work was a gift, but now work is what? work. There's symmetry in here. God is demonstrating, you want to rebel against me, I'm going to communicate to you. I'm going to remind you daily in the very essence of how you were made and what you were made for and the fact that you can't fulfill that the way you could before. I'm going to remind you daily that I am the one in authority. I'm going to remind you in your limitations that I'm the one who's in power. But then he also what? He also showed us grace. And you see that grace played out there in 321 and 22, where he does what? He makes the animal skins to cover them. They had tried to cover themselves with leaves, but they had failed miserably. And so in his grace, in his mercy, he made the animal skins. 
And actually, the, the word where it talks about the clothing, the Hebrew word that's used there is the word that's used later on for priestly garments. It's the exact same word. It's only used in those two contexts, here and there. But what's God saying? He says, even though you've sinned, even though you've failed, I'm going to make you mediators to each other of who I am. I'm going to help you to reach out to each other of, of how I made you. And so his authority is, plays out here with, with his, his questioning, challenging, with his, with his uh, holding us accountable, and with his grace, giving to us what we could not do for ourselves. Now immediately on the hills of this, you see man's response. And one of the t things that it tells us there is the very first thing that happens is man names his wife Eve. Which tells us quite clearly things aren't like they used to be. Whereas before he described her, now he's naming her. He's, he's exercising this authority. Whereas before they worked together, now he's positioned himself over her and she's going to struggle for that position herself. But there's another part to that very first act that, that is significant. And that is that Adam, in response to all that God had done, the grace, the accountability, all those other things, Adam saw that there was a future. How do we know he saw there was a future? Because of what he named his wife, Eve, which means the mother of all living things. From this point forward, we're going to find a way forward. Why? Because God has acted graciously. And so in that very act of naming, you see both the consequences of the fall and the hope of the grace that God expressed coming out of it. And so I come to you this morning and I ask you, how are you responding to the fact that God is king? When you have the options before you to, to see the, the restriction or the provision, which one are you aiming for? When you have the consequences of sin in your life, are you holding on to those consequences and just dwelling there? Are you seeing that there's a possibility of a future? And that future is expressed because God sent His Son to die on your behalf. 